Hello, folks. We're down the line from Cape Cod once again tonight with political analyst, author, and historian, Dr. James D. Boyce. I'm Michael L. Roberts. This is the American Chronicle. to warmly welcome you to this, the 21st episode of the American Chronicle. Uh, my apologies for the somewhat uh, garish backdrop behind me here, uh, compared by Dr. James D. Boyes as being akin to something from a Hobbit movie. So, uh, Peter Jackson, if you're listening, uh, myself and apparently this hotel room are available should you uh, wish to reinvigorate the franchise. Uh, tonight's show follows hot on the heels of the final presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, this was uh, the 16th time that we have seen Donald Trump debate in this setting, and indeed the 16th and last time, uh, given the, uh, uh, the four years ahead being either his final term or the first term of a President Biden. As such, I began by asking James for his initial impressions of last night's debate. Uh, so last night we saw the second and final uh, debate between President Trump and Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, it was a debate which many people, myself included, had speculated might not actually occur. Uh, indeed, over here in the United States, uh, as late as a, an hour or two beforehand, uh, many of the networks were asking whether it was actually going to occur uh, due to uh, the, the regulations which had been imposed on the candidates uh, which many of us believed that uh, Donald Trump might well not want to adhere to. Uh, however, it went ahead and um, under slightly unusual circumstances, obviously because of the COVID situation. And um, clearly uh, it was a very different debate uh, than the, the, sec the previous debate, which uh, of course many people were still reeling from, quite frankly. Uh, but you would have to say, I think, uh, that Donald Trump seems to have learnt from that, uh, that occasion. Uh, and um, gave a debate which was uh, totally removed from his first debate, uh, much more uh, controlled, possessed, and, uh, and dignified, which isn't necessarily, uh, aren't three adjectives which, which one would usually apply uh, to Donald Trump. Mm, mm. Yes, uh, unusual decorum. To what extent do you associate that with uh, the, the setting of the rules, and to what extent do you associate it with uh, campaign strategy, as it were? Um, well, very clearly the rules have changed on this uh, occasion to ensure that the candidates both knew that they were going to um, uh, be, be muted uh, at the end of their first two-minute um, statement. Uh, it it's, doesn't look as though that muting actually needed to be utilised. It looks as though the candidates, and particularly Donald Trump, realised that their mics were going to be cut, so why bother you know, trying to fight the system? Uh, you have to say, I think, to give credit to... Uh, both the commission for presidential debates, the, uh, uh, the two candidates, uh, and indeed the moderator, uh, who is getting great praise over here for her work on the night, that uh, the, the rules seem to work splendidly. Very clearly, they hadn't been in effect the, the, on the, uh, the, the previous debate. 
and that was quite frankly a car crash which was an embarrassment to all concerned. Uh, last night, I think uh, even the president's most harshest critics, I, I would hope, would have to give him some credit uh, for turning in a, a performance which was as stately, presidential, uh, controlled as frankly I've ever seen Donald Trump. And um, one would imagine uh, that uh, that performance will have uh, done well for him uh, amongst independent voters um, at the very least. Mm. I've seen the uh, statistics on the number of falsehoods that were uh, uh, presented by both candidates in, in this case. To what extent uh, uh, do you feel that the, the presentation in this instance, that different, uh, uh, different Trump in, in presentation mode, in, in, in a, uh, a softer, more, more, more relaxed, less interrupting mode, uh, covered covered himself a little bit in terms of the fact that that fundamentally many of the things he was saying were still the the same old falsehoods that he has previously shouted at the cameras and his opponents. Well, who'd have thought we'd see a kinder, gentler Trump? Quite frankly. <laughs> uh, however, um, miracles can happen, I guess. Uh, the, I, I think that the, the important thing to take away from this is that. Um, the networks are very, very eager to try and fact check this. And I know CNN had a fact checker running throughout the night. Mm -hmm. um, very clearly that there were falsehoods, missteps on both parts, on the hearts of both candidates, quite frankly. And I'm quite sure that there were more coming from Donald Trump, but to the average voter, I think, and individual who's watching this, I don't think most people are sitting there with a scoreboard trying to, you know, go through this with a, a fine tooth comb to discern whether one candidate or another's figures are fact really correct or not. Um, I, I remember, you know, 20 odd years ago, George W. Bush suggesting that we were going to hear some fuzzy math um, from Al Gore, uh, if you remember that occasion. So these, are, these debates are entirely about presentation. You know, tone presentation is vital. The, the actual factual makeup, I'm sorry to say, probably has less import than many people, political scientists in particular, would like to think. Mm. You know, this is about presentation. It's a visual medium uh, that we're looking at here. We're not in 1960 where, you know, a high percentage of the, of the population are listening to this on the radio and thinking, well, you know, I think Nixon won because they couldn't see his five o'clock shadow effectively. You know, this is a visual medium now mm -hmm. and how it is that the two candidates present themselves has probably more importance than what they convey. And I think on that basis, if not that basis alone, you'd have to say Donald Trump had a great night, um, how he comported himself, how he presented himself. Just from a physical standpoint, uh, he's a much bigger man than Joe Biden. Uh, Biden, I had to say, looked an awful lot more than just three years older than Donald Trump did last night. And I thought that as the performance uh, waned throughout the evening, uh, Joe Biden's confidence seemed to dissipate. Uh, I thought that uh, uh, President Trump, you would never have thought he was only in the hospital some seven to ten days ago. He looked um, a, a very... Um, uh, like a man in charge of himself and uh, at, at, at ease with himself, I thought. It was Joe Biden just looked like a 77 frail year old, frail old man. And uh, the longer the debate went on, it seemed the more flustered he got, the more he got caught up in himself. Um, and of course, at the end of the debate, uh, 
Uh, he talked about uh, trying to transition away from big oil, which uh, he's since had to try to walk back. So uh, presentationally, um, I thought that it was a good night for the president. And it'll be interesting to see how that is uh, reflected not only in the immediate polls which come out, but also, of course, uh, for those people who are yet to vote uh, in the November election. Mm. Uh, a light question followed by a detailed question here. Um, uh, I Did I catch a, a Biden looking at his watch? And uh, I know that you can give us some historical context on that on the light front uh, and on the uh, uh, on the energy front in terms of what would be happening under a Biden administration in terms of the oil industry. I haven't seen the walkbacks today. Could you fill me in on that, please? Yeah, so about two thirds of the way through the debate, uh, Joe Biden inexplicably started looking at his watch uh, for those students of American history, which I know include yourself and myself, uh, it, it immediately should trigger memories of 1992 when President George H.W. Bush in the, uh, the town hall setting meeting with Governor Clinton and Ross Perot uh, infamously did exactly the same thing, checking his watch. Now, uh, President Bush uh, said thereafter, well, I was doing it because I was seen to, trying to see how much extra time the other candidates were talking after their allotted time. The problem is, of course, that, again, see my previous answer, it's a visual uh, medium and people aren't sitting there, you know, uh, trying to analyze what George W. H. W. Bush uh, is thinking or read tea leaves about why he might be doing something. All they know is, oh, here's a guy looking at his watch. He looks bored. Uh, does he want to be here? Um, that was the message which came out of that. It was compounded by a, a relatively poor performance that night. And of course, George H.W. Bush went on to lose that election uh, to Bill Clinton. Uh, last night, um, obviously, Joe Biden was seen checking his watch. Um, just here's a message to anybody doing debates. If you're doing a debate, take your watch off before you go on stage. You don't need it. <laughs> Serves you no purpose. It can only be a distraction. <laughs> so uh, again, but it, it, it speaks, I think, to the, the one of the challenges which comes out of these debates is that you you take from it what you bring to it. So the networks here have been, you know, as usual, very, very partisan. Fox News basically saying how well Donald Trump has done, how poorly Joe Biden's done. Uh, CNN and MSNBC giving Donald Trump absolutely no credit uh, for, for his more um, presidential performance, if you will. Uh, Jake Tapper almost immediately suggesting, well, you know, people seem to think he wants plaudits because he didn't set himself on fire. It's like, well, that gets us nowhere, quite frankly. Mm. Um, so no one's critiquing Biden for looking at his watch yet. We'll see. Um, one wonders, let's, let's, let's see what happens. We're speaking now the day after the final debate. If Biden loses his presidential election, let's see whether in the aftermath of that defeat, people look back on the autopsy of his campaign and say, well, look, uh, he checked his watch. It was a turning point for the campaign. People thought he looked bored, tired, et cetera, et cetera, just like they did with H.W. Bush mm. in 1992. Um, something that he certainly did at the end, almost the, the right at the end. I mean, again, I, I talked about Biden's energy levels dropping. Uh, mm. uh, he made, I think, what was perhaps the biggest gaffe of the night, which was talking about making the transition away from, from big oil. Well, you know, to many people uh, on the political left, and certainly in Europe, I'm sure, that will be a blessing to their ears, people who want to move away from fossil fuels towards, you know, electric cars, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, 
the, the oil industry in this country is huge and very, very difficult to underest underestimate how important it is uh, on all kinds of levels, politically, financially, uh, culturally, um, socially. And Donald Trump pulled him on it. I mean, he immediately realized what it was that uh, Biden had done. Um, let, let's be honest about it. Look, now I'm no, the difficulty with this is, is as soon as you try to suggest that Donald Trump did something right, there's people out there who want to say, oh, you're an apologist for Donald Trump, but I knew it all along, and you should have a brown shirt or not a blue shirt. <laughs> the, problem is, the problem is, is that Donald Trump is a better candidate to a certain extent than he was four years ago on some issues and yet not on others. I thought the debate performance last night was the best debate performance I have ever seen him give, mm. uh, going all the way back through the Republican primaries, mm. uh, the debates with Hillary, awesome. uh, and, and the, uh, right up until uh, the last debate with Joe Biden, which was a real terrible incident. Last night, he was great. And frankly, if he had acted like that from day one of his presidency, I think he'd be in a very different place now uh, with the polls and with the American people. Uh, but he hasn't been. Donald Trump clocked the fact that at the first debate, uh, Joe Biden had started to distance himself from the Green New Deal and said, look, you just lost the left, which is probably true, quite frankly. If, if Biden wants to win the, the election, he needs to basically not only reach into the middle and get independent and disaffected Republicans if he can do so, but make sure he brings the left with him. Um, if he can't do all that, he can't win the presidency. And last night it was telling that Donald Trump immediately jumped all over the fact that Biden had talked about transitioning away from big oil. Uh, there's no doubt, I think, that in the long run, that's probably a necessity of life. But as Trump reminded him, you know, we are, the United States is now energy independent um, for the first time uh, in forever, quite frankly. And one of the reasons for that is because of, you know, uh, domestic uh, oil production, uh, as well as other assets of the American energy um, market, quite frankly. Um, so when Biden starts talking about you know, moving away from big oil, you know, that immediately puts all the gains that the Democrats are trying to make in places like Texas, for example, at risk. And um, it, it's notable, I think, that uh, there's been a discernible attempt to try and walk that back somewhat. But people will, of course, remember the statement and not the retraction, I think. What does it tell us about the political cycle of four years that a candidate in this position at this time with regards to uh, climate crises, climate change, global warming and otherwise, can't set or can't be seen to set that trajectory because of the way it impacts upon the present as opposed to how it might impact upon the future? This is one of the great challenges with the American electoral system. There are advantages and disadvantages to it. Um, you, know, you, you know, the American constitution was set up so that there was not a, a constitutional monarch. You know, we didn't want to replace, you know, the, the English monarch with, a, with an American monarch. So what do you do? Well, you therefore have relatively short time frames for every administration. Now, we're talking about a document which has been in place for over 240 years. So back in the day, of course, a four-year term was, was not an, uh, uh, necessarily a short time period and people, you know, didn't have as long a life expectancy as they do nowadays. But one of the challenges you have is that when, you know, the, the most a president can serve, uh, except under very unusual circumstances, is for eight years. That really is not a long time to, to implement change of any sort, quite frankly. 
uh, it really is a problem when you are, you know, running for election, trying to understand how to be in a, in, in a position, be that the president, the Senate or the House. And then, of course, you're immediately looking to, to re-election. And then once you're re-elected, you know, you're almost a lame duck and people are looking to your successor. So trying to um, establish long-term policy, whether that's domestic policy with regard to energy, whether it's foreign and looking at sort of grand strategy issues, it becomes very, very difficult simply because of the, the electoral uh, uh, timescales which the Constitution imposes upon every American politician, uh, be they Republican or Democrat. And of course, when you compound that with uh, the need to try to win certain demographics within the United States, uh, certain key uh, states within the union, if you are to secure uh, an electoral college uh, mandate, then that all of a sudden becomes more and more complicated. Uh, we've seen how these issues can play out. Uh, one of the uh, challenges, for example, why, why relationships with Cuba, for example, have remained so static over the years and why Donald Trump was so eager to roll back uh, Barack Obama's progress in the areas, it, it comes down to one word and that is Florida. Uh, you know, you candidates need the, the electoral college votes from Florida to win the presidency. And we saw four years ago, uh, if Florida had gone Hillary Clinton's way, which many of us thought it possibly could have done and should have done, she'd be president of the United States now. It didn't. Uh, and I'm sure that part of the reason for that was Donald Trump uh, making it very, very clear to Floridians that he wasn't in favor of what Obama and by extension Obama's Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had done with regard to normalizing relations with Cuba. So, um, you know, this idea of the foreign impacting the domestic and the domestic impacting the foreign is something which, um, I mean, you know, has been at the center of a lot of my work over the years, uh, but which is often, all too often, I think, uh, uh, forgotten uh, by the American media in particular uh, and by analysts who simply want to focus upon either foreign policy or domestic policy. But here in an election cycle, I think you can see very much how um, they do impact one another. Uh, and certainly with regard to the energy industry that was the, the focus of your question, very clearly uh, the energy sets that Joe Biden's remarks last night might appear to impact uh, are, are key uh, states within the union, uh, which it must be said, Democrats are looking to try to make great strides in. Uh, frankly, if the Democrats could start flipping Texas Republicans would be out of the White House for a very long time period. Mm. So that's why Joe Biden's apparent gaffe last night uh, was so uh, was so important. Mm. In terms of, as you say, of transcending that duality of, of uh, a perceived duality of domestic and foreign policy, uh, would you say the better campaign strategy in these in these presidential campaign moments uh, would be to uh, keep your cards close to your chest, as it were, in terms of long term strategy, uh, long term trajectory? And uh, uh, and attempt to capture the zeitgeist rather than the future. I think an election cycle is always a bad time uh, for forecasting and for projection. Uh, very clearly, uh, the American presidency in the past has, on occasion, been the place of great uh, aspiration and uh, goal setting. Uh, None more so, of course, in in the early 1960s when. Uh, President Kennedy plan, uh, pledged to put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth before the end of the decade. Uh, there's been one or two presidents who were able to make that kind of, um, of uh, aspirational uh, 
dream setting, if you will. But um, elections are a bad time for that because, of course, uh, most people probably don't believe promises made in an election year. Um, but what is notable, I think, about Donald Trump uh, this time around is the lack of goal setting for a second term. He doesn't seem to have um, a, a rationale for why he would want to be president for another four years mm. other than to stop Joe Biden from becoming president. Well, that's one reason, I suppose, but it's, it's not exactly a reason to rush out to vote for someone. Uh, but likewise, it must be said, what's Joe Biden's aspiration? Well, it's to stop Donald Trump continuing to be president. You know, the, the lack of um, aspirational qualities in these two men is, is remarkable, quite frankly. For those of us who grew up, you know, under Reagan's America and with uh, the distant, not too distant memory of Kennedy's America, you know, this, this, this I think, augurs poorly for the United States in terms of its, its, its future. Both men, of course, are in their, let's be generous, mid-70s. And, um, you know, one wonders how much longer they will be around. You know, they have, there is a natural life expectancy, after all. Whoever wins the election in November, um, the very first question will be asked, well, who comes next? What happens next? Because, of course, Donald Trump is constitutionally prohibited from seeking a third term in office. Hmm. So the question will be, who starts the race to replace him? What's Mike Pence doing? Is he positioning himself? Uh, if Joe Biden has been elected, he will be America's oldest elected president at 77, if I'm not mistaken. And all the questions will be now about, well, is he, what's his health like? What's going to be happening? Where's Kamala Harris? What's she positioning herself? This is one of the reasons this election is so bizarre is, yes, there are uh, key issues at stake, but whoever wins um, is in many ways going to be a placeholder president for the next president. And that again, you know, you were asking me earlier on about the timescales of the American presidential system. Again, this is one of the great flaws in this system, which is as soon as one president is elected, the race to replace them begins in earnest. Um, meaning that the focus is always upon the next election and not upon uh, the next governing cycle, which is one of the reasons I've always said this system is geared up beautifully for campaigning, but poorly for government. Campaign, campaign in poetry and governing prose. Yes. Absolutely. Um, the picking up on the importance of presentation and uh, as as you as you rightfully say the this notion that the uh, the campaigns aren't the aren't the great space for trajectory. What would the the undecided voter in America last night have got from what they felt Trump was going to do with America for four years and what Joe Biden was going to do with America for four years? Um. Well, I think that one of the things that they will, will be asking themselves, perhaps, is a question which Donald Trump raised, which is when Joe Biden was expressing what he wanted to do, um, a lot of it seemed to be either continuing the work of Barack Obama to some extent or correcting fixes, uh, which either he himself had uh, been involved in as vice president or during his former career as a senator. And as Donald Trump kind of rightly said, well, what were you doing for eight years when you were vice president? Why, why weren't you doing this when you were in office? Why wait, you know, another, where are we? Uh, another four years to run and then, you know, talk about something you might do if you're elected. So I thought that was an effective line from Donald Trump last night. Uh, Biden obviously is talking about uh, correcting and continuing uh, what was originally known as Obamacare, which he now suggests would become Biden care. 
interestingly, uh, quite happy to put his own name to a, a system which many people believe uh, uh, has, has many flaws to it, quite frankly. Um, that compares very starkly with Donald Trump, who didn't say it last night, but certainly uh, revealed in the 60-minute tape that his campaign leaked, that he'd be very happy if the Supreme Court struck it down and got rid of it. So there are stark contrasts with regard to that policy. Um, with regard to other policies, you know, it depends what you want to believe. Clearly, um, Biden said last night that he was talking about transitioning away from big oil. Maybe that is the case, maybe it isn't the case, depending upon um, what he said today, quite frankly. Very clearly, Donald Trump doesn't believe that. He's uh, all for American continued energy independence uh, and for making America secure at home from an energy point of view, which uh, many people I think here would be, would be in favor of. Uh, issues of taxation clearly come up. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that Donald Trump as a, a Republican president would want to continue with a, a low taxation threshold and reducing taxes uh, uh, upon Americans, whereas the, the Democrats have, have long had a history of, of raising taxes and frankly little that Joe Biden has ever said uh, would probably uh, convince people otherwise. So, you know, if people are voting out of um, their own self-interest um, on, on those issues, uh, then probably Joe Biden has a, has a mountain to climb. On the other hand, there's a small matter of coronavirus and the fact that we've now passed, I think it's 220,000 deaths here in the United States under the best line Joe Biden had all night, quite frankly, came at the top of the debate when he said quite clearly that anyone responsible for the deaths of 220,000 Americans doesn't deserve to be president of the United States. Um, now that's, that's a killer line, quite frankly. The question is, uh, which will stick? You know, we are, I believe, at a point now where more people have already voted this electoral cycle by mail-in ballots than voted in the entirety of the election some four years ago. Now, that's remarkable. Um, it says a lot about the dip in voter turnout four years ago, which I will always believe will be one of the main reasons that Hillary lost in, in those three key states. Um, a bigger reflection on then than now, perhaps. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, so what does that mean? Does that mean who, who is left to vote, quite frankly? Um, how many people will be left to be um, influenced after last night's debate? Is it true that Joe Biden could have basically had a terrible night and it not impacted? Is it true that, um, that the president could have had the best debate performance of his life and yet it still wouldn't be enough because... The, uh, the vast majority of people who are going to vote will have voted. Who knows? It's going to be fascinating to see how it is that the ultimate tally of votes um, comes out in terms of how many people put mail-in ballots compared to uh, people turning up on the, uh, to, to, to vote on election day itself. Mm. Uh, out of interest, what sort of percentage of the, of the American electorate does that, those who have already voted, what sort of percentage does that uh, take up? Um, it, it depends very much upon how it is you calculate the American uh, electorate, quite frankly. But clearly, uh, the suggestion would be that at this point, anything up to um, some 50% of Americans who uh, are eligible to, eligible to vote may well have done so by, uh, by mail-in ballots. Uh, well, when you consider that, you know, it, trying to get more than 50% of Americans to vote, quite frankly, uh, in an election is, uh, is like pulling teeth then you realize just how many people have gone to the polls very, very early. Um, a, a great turnout might be 60%. Uh, 
um, very, very clearly, we're now at a point where that, that might well be achieved at this rate prior to the election itself. I believe that we've cleared some 50, 55% of Americans who are eligible to vote having done so. Um, you know, when you consider that the turnout dropped four years ago, um, and the idea now that perhaps even more people than that have voted by mail in, it does make you realize um, what, what, a, what a shift we're seeing here uh, in participatory democracy. Uh, I should point out, by the way, I saw an interesting story before we came on to, to do this, suggesting that uh, Donald Trump is planning to vote by mail-in ballot this weekend, uh, which made me smile because, of course, he spent so much time uh, attacking the process and suggesting that it was uh, uh, a system that was wide open to fraud and, uh, and abuse. <laughs> you mean he won't be queuing in person? Apparently <laughs> not. Incredible. Yes. Um, <laughs> speaking of uh, in-person and uh, uh, at-person, as it were, uh, it, it was it was fairly noteworthy last night that that whilst uh, occasionally through uh, a lens of uh, greater decorum, Donald Trump continued his ad hominem attacks upon Joe Biden and Joe Biden's family. Uh, nearly every time, other than a few corrections, uh, Biden shied away from, would you like to respond to that, which, which felt very much like a, a charged question of, would you like to respond to that with an ad hominem attack back? Uh, uh, did, did Biden make a mistake in not going after the Trump family in the same way that Trump went after the Biden family in the final debate? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, you know, how, how do you respond to attacks of that nature? Do you do it by simply uh, trying to deny it and moving on? Or do you basically, from, from, from a critical point of view, descend to the same level? Uh, the challenge, of course, is this. Um, if you actually analyze Joe Biden's responses uh, to attacks that his family members have benefited financially from his position uh, as a public servant, um, there is a slight challenge, which is Joe Biden's responses tend to be, I've never benefited from um, any financial gain. I've never received money. Well, that's not the allegation. The allegation isn't have you benefited. It's have your family, has your uh, siblings, have your, have, your, have your offspring benefited. And he seems to be either unwilling or unable to address that question. And the problem is that, you know, it's a little bit like when Bill Clinton was initially asked by Jim Lehrer about the relationship uh, with Monica Lewinsky, uh, when he was first asked questions about his alleged relationship with Jennifer Flowers. And his answer is always, there isn't a relationship. But the answer should, it wasn't, there wasn't a relationship. And, you know, people initially don't clock that. But once you start to see that pattern emerging, um, then you realize that there's an effort here to uh, pass your answer and you can't give a straight answer. If Joe Biden had said at any point, look, I've not benefited financially from any of this. Um, clearly my, my children or my siblings are their own individuals and they have gone out into the world and made their own way in the world and have benefited uh, from these relationships, just as your own children have, Mr. President. I noticed that Ivanka is making X number of million. I noticed that Don Jr. has continued to make deals like this. Um, you know, there is the old expression that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And it's remarkable to me that um, someone who lives in a white house, uh, rather than the glass house, is, is throwing stones of this nature, because you would have thought it would be an all too obvious point for Joe Biden to come back and to critique how it is that Donald Trump has run his business empire, 
the roles that are played by Don Jr. Uh, and Eric Trump and Ivanka Trump and uh, uh, and by extension Jared Kushner and yet he's not done so uh, whether you see that as reaching for the high ground in an honorable way is is one thing it could also be a, a catastrophic mistake because it does allow the charges to rest arguably unanswered uh, without revealing uh, what might be thought of as the hypocrisy quite frankly in Donald Trump's uh, decision to go after Joe Biden in this fashion mm, mm. I'll try for the purposes of uh, gaining a historical context answer out of you to, to uh, uh, tie two of tonight's themes together. The one is that uh, electoral four-year cycle and the limitations that it places upon how things might be uh, communicated. Uh, and the other one is what I understand to be some of the more moderate Republicans' argument that, that uh, within a sense, the, the term global warming doesn't actually incorporate global very much. It's, it's global warming policies in terms of the Green New Deal uh, uh, stateside that ensure that uh, uh, whilst America is, is required and, and the West is required to deplete its, its uh, uh, efforts in, in raw material energy and otherwise, the uh, uh, India, Russia, China, etc. Are, are, are burning through raw materials at, a, at an unprecedented rate, essentially uh, uh, engaging in their own industrial revolution in, in the 21st century. So tying those two things together, how do you see the uh, this notion that that the the Western four-year electoral cycle limits the grand strategy of a leader within that situation in a way that it does not limit Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, or otherwise? Yeah. So last night uh, we saw you know the limitations of the American uh, electoral system at the fore, quite frankly, because. But one of the difficulties is, is that from an outside point of view, especially from Europe, um, it's very easy, to, I think, to mock successive Republican American presidents for um, refusing to engage positively with um, the, the global effort to combat climate change. Um, we saw this several years ago with George W. Bush, for example, when he refused to um, join the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, we've seen it um, starkly with Donald Trump and his uh, withdrawal from the Paris uh, Climate Control Agreement. Uh, that was on display last night because, of course, Joe Biden said that he would re-engage uh, with that. Uh, and I'm sure from a European point of view, one wonders why there is that, that distinction between the two parties. Uh, I think one of the challenges is, and, and Donald Trump laid this out, is that certainly from a Republican point of view, um, it's believed that the United States is surrendering its position uh, in the present uh, to allow for the future development of uh, potential global competitors, such as China, Russia, India, even, um, for whom uh, the Republican Party uh, would say we are, we are laying off jobs, we are dismantling our own um, energy infrastructure for no uh, discernible benefit except for the benefit of India, China, Russia. And when you see how it is that people like Vladimir Putin, for example, have positioned themselves so that, sure, they're, you know, in a democracy and are running for re-election, um, you know, Putin has effectively been running Russia um, one way or the other uh, since, what, 1990-2000. You know, he is able to put in place a long-term uh, energy strategy, um, which he alone is going to be responsible for. If you look at what's going on in China, uh, President Xi 
uh, is effectively going to be president for life. Um, India, of course, is a different situation as the world's largest democracy, so I wouldn't want to impugn uh, their uh, system. But certainly, all three countries, I think, are seen to be potentially benefiting um, whilst those nations, not only in the United States, but arguably in Western Europe as well, are seen to be having to sort of walk back their own uh, energy uh, production, for example. And I think that the challenge in the United States is, is that there is a recognition of the hypocrisy of this. And that it seems that the only people who seem to be reflecting the hypocrisy of this is the Republicans. Um, very clearly, there is tension uh, within um, you know, how this policy is put together. Uh, but quite frankly, as long as there is a Republican in the White House uh, and a Republican Senate, uh, then the Democrats are going to be able to do very little about this. And if you consider, I think, the, the, the long-term the long goals here of places like uh, Russia and China uh, to establish their own um, energy uh, independence uh, and their own ability to project force, no doubt, and to uh, be global players uh, to an extent, uh, and to challenge the United States, I think that the perhaps more realist realpolitik approach adopted by the Republican Party is in stark contrast to the idealism of the Democrats. Um, but you have to suggest that there is very little that's idealistic um, about what it is that uh, she or Putin are trying to do for their respective countries. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, they would be uh, quite amused at the uh, what would some might see as the naivete of the American idealism exhibited by the likes of Barack Obama and perhaps uh, Joe Biden. Um, this is not a, a come by ya moment. This is about realpolitik and American grand strategy. And uh, again, it demonstrates the, the, the importance of blending foreign and domestic policy uh, with regard to looking at issues of grand strategy and how it is that the United States positions itself, uh, not only at home, but around the world uh, with regards to, in this case, energy policy uh, and the ability to try to formulate a policy moving beyond a, a short eight year period uh, and into the more near term uh, distance. Dr. James T. Boyce in combative mood there, taking on the perceived flaws in both the Democrat and Republican positions in this election. We are now just two shows away from the ultimate showdown, as it were. And so next week you will see us in a similar setting, and then we find ourselves in uh, various negotiations to bring you a live show on the night of the election, should you choose to uh, spend that time with us and indeed stay up into the early hours of the morning, if in the UK, then we would be most honoured to spend said time with you. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Michael L. Roberts. You've been listening to The American Chronicle, a 12th Pier production 2020 with music by Chris Warner. Good luck and ever onward to you all.